Well, Governor, welcome to Toronto and to this very special gathering of the Canadian Club where we announce the recipient of the Canadian of the Year Award for 2012. The club has presented this award annually since 1992 to distinguished Canadians. Canadians who have demonstrated continuous effort over a significant period of time, Canadians who have directly improved the lives of their fellow Canadians, Canadians who have promoted and enhanced the image of Canada abroad. The award has recognized Canadians who have served as role models, particularly for our young people. And the list of past participants reads like a who's who of talented Canadians, both distinguished in their chosen fields and examples of high standards for others to follow. Previously, we've recognized Mordecai Richler, John Furlong, who, as you know, headed up the 2010 Vancouver Olympics and Paralympics, prima ballerina Karen Kane, and the Chief Justice of Canada, the Right Honourable Beverly McLaughlin. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm pleased to announce what you know, that the 2012 Canadian of the Year is Mark Kearney, the Governor of the Bank of Canada. I can't think of anyone who merits this recognition more, who has worked harder for Canadians in times of significant financial difficulty. When you were here last December, others described you as a fiscal and economic rock star, both uh, here and abroad. Your steady hand on monetary policy, interest rates, stimulus and inflation have helped Canadians as we have collectively coped with the period since 2008. Internationally, your work with the G20, the Eurozone economic crisis, and the respect you've gained not just for yourself but for Canada resulted in your appointment as chair of the Financial Stability Fund, a position you added to being on the board of directors of the Bank of International Settlements. Governor, under your leadership, which we recognize and honour today, we have gone through a worldwide recession and are in the cusp of economic recovery, moving back to full capacity. During the time that you've been in office, uh, you've worked hard to guarantee better financial future for Canadians and to make sure that we handle the recession as well as we can. It's a privilege on behalf of everyone here today to welcome you today as our Canadian of the Year. Governor of the Canadian Club Podium, Canada's podium of record is yours. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Jamie, uh, very much. Uh, Ed, Dory, Danny, uh, for sponsoring this. It's very, very kind of you. Uh, Jamie, those uh, extremely kind words, I'm not sure they're merited, but uh, I'll say, uh, as I say, I wish my parents had been here uh, to hear them. My father would have enjoyed it, my mother would have believed it. Um, <laughs> My wife, Diana, is here, as you may have heard. She believes none of it, um, and, uh, and for good reason. Um, my credibility at home took a big hit about, uh, it was basically about this time five years ago. Um, we were discussing the possibility of my applying for this role uh, the gov as, as governor, um, and my argument in favor went something like this. Um, it's an interesting job, you know, sad but true. I think economics is interesting. Um, we would have continuity. 
continuity. Uh, for the first time since grade five, I'd know what I was doing for the next seven years. Um, and uh, we wouldn't have to move. And it was also the most predictable job in the world. Remember, this was in the great moderation. We didn't know it was about to come to an end. But the structure of, uh, of uh, the Bank of Canada, at least as I saw it, was you had eight interest rate decisions you had to make a year. The dates of those decisions were set two years in advance. You had six meetings of your board of directors, a couple of uh, G7 meetings in nice places, uh, dedicated, talented staff, home by five, you know. Um, and, uh, oops. So, meatloaf may have got away with uh, two out of three, but uh, I've been paying for that misplaced optimism ever since, because shortly after we had that initial conversation, uh, my future colleague, uh, uh, Jean-Claude Trichet, who is the uh, recently retired president of the European Central Bank, uh, he was on a brief holiday. Uh, he left his uh, office in Frankfurt, uh, rarely. Uh, he was a little nervous. There were some tremors, as he said, in the financial markets. This is the summer of 2007. And he was up in the Scottish Highlands. Um, and he was, as I say, a little anxious about things. He didn't have his Blackberry with him. Uh, so he goes into the local village, uh, Pitlockery, I think it was, uh, and he goes to the news agent uh, and uh, says to the lady behind the counter, uh, do you you have the Financial Times, uh, and she says, "Well, would, yeah. Would you like, uh, would you like uh, yesterday's, or would you like today's?" And <laughs> Trichet, you know, a little nervous, but always polite. But Madam, I would very much, very much prefer today's. To which she replies, "Well, come back tomorrow." <laughs> um, so, well, this is where Trichet would say, "But we can't wait till tomorrow. We have to act. Policymakers have to act." And that's sort of my theme, is so how do you act? How did people act um, both rapidly and effectively? Um, how do you act when the world is undergoing an amazing transformation? And how do you act when people are losing confidence in the system? And what I'm going to try to draw out is how Canada, uh, not an individual, but how Canada plays a role in those, those situations. Um, so the first, first question, how to act both rapidly and effectively? And if you consider some of the events that, uh, I was thinking back on some of the events that happened, you know, sort of shortly after Trichet got his Financial Times and gripped it and rushed back to the office. Um, we had the, early on, the collapse of the asset-backed commercial paper market and the CIV uh, market. Uh, only a few of you remember those. Um, we, they're buried somewhere. Uh, but these were $200 billion plus markets that collapsed virtually overnight. Uh, we had the failure of Bear Stearns, uh, which coincided with our first vacation, well-planned vacation, which we made in advance. Um, the failure of the monolines, remember them. The failure of uh, Fannie and Freddie, the, the GSEs. Uh, the failure of Washington Mutual, Wachovia. All of these events, virtually unthinkable, uh, only weeks before. Um, this culminated uh, in the spectacular fall of Lehman, uh, as the government, U.S. government stepped back and the U.K. government stepped back, the fall of Lehman. And 24 hours later, after what Barney Frank dubbed Free Market Day, the rescue of AIG, Free Market Day, because the free market only lasted a day in Barney's, Barney's view. Uh, and then, of course, we've been subject to the rolling waves of uh, the euro crisis. Um, and I, I guess I'd, I'd like to try to draw a couple of uh, lessons from that in terms of crisis management, or at least what I've seen that, that worked a bit in crises. Uh, the first is very obvious, transparency triumphs. I mean, I've got the master here with Jamie. I shouldn't should be asking you to give this bit. Um, but you cannot spin your way out of a financial crisis. Uh, you've got to get bad news out. You've got to level with people as quickly as possible. Tell them what you know. Um, and I think that, uh, that the bank uh, 
has done that. Um, slightly central banker speak, but we, uh, we called early on that, uh, and these are quotes, that we're facing a financial crisis without comparison for generations. This was in 2008. Uh, we've said earlier uh, at the end of last year that the European crisis was barely contained because it was at that point uh, barely contained before the heroic actions of the ECB. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I know you're all tired of hearing this, but uh, we've said that you know, Canada has a household debt problem. It's inconvenient uh, to have it. Uh, we'd rather not have it, um, but it's important to say what we see. The point as well, the advantage of, 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 of delivering some uncomfortable or bad news, of course, is hopefully that when you point out that things are not as bad as it seems, uh, that it has traction. Uh, so uh, in the fall of December, I think, 2009, I'll get my dates right, I remember being in a different room in Toronto and being asked whether the government had to save the Montreal Accord, which was to fix this ABCP problem. Uh, and the honest answer, which I gave, was no. Our system could withstand the failure of that accord. It wouldn't be in the best interests of, the, of, of a lot of Canadians who, who own some of this paper or institutions. It would have been messy. And it would have been a much bigger issue outside our, 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 our country than it would have been internally. Um, and so it was important to have it, but we could withstand it. And that was important to say, uh, because actually I think, and, and Ed and others played instrumental roles in making, getting this over the finish line, um, that that helped force people abroad to come to the table and make the final agreement. Um, uh, it was important, I think, uh, you know, to, we obviously do our best in, in a, as realist a fashion in terms of our forecasts. Uh, early 2009, the world's in free fall, but we had a very strong view that given all the stimulus that the federal government was put, about to put in place, that the bank was putting in place, the strength of our banks, it meant that our, was, our economy was going to grow uh, 3%, 3% uh, plus the next year. Don, you grilled me on your show about this very issue, and I had 21 models behind me. You <laughs> laughed at that. You were uh, impressed by that. But uh, it's, uh, it's important. And I think now we have the issue, I mean, this is a different order of magnitude, but it's important to state as a, as a bit of a debate builds up in the country on commodities, look, we're in a commodity super cycle globally. It's better to have commodities in that environment than not. It's a question of how we develop them and, and, and how much of the value added we get. The second crisis management lesson, sorry, I'm being slow on this, but is that you know, plan beats no plan. Uh, it's incredibly important. That's one of Tim Geithner's expressions, um, which is right. You, you, you have to have a plan. You have to, somebody has to take a decision uh, in a crisis. And when markets are panicking, and unfortunately, there were periods when markets were panicking, uh, a decision, any decision provides a focal point. Um, but that plan tends to be better if you've got a um, longer term horizon. That seven year sentence helps, actually. Seven year term helps because it gives you that longer horizon, and I'm reminded, you know, that sense of permanence, this is one of the advantages of central banks. This is one of the, sometimes people call in the question, utility of central banks, but one of the advantages is that permanence and that ability to look through the moment um, when necessary. Um, I recall my, my colleague at the Swiss National Bank, uh, again, this was shortly after the Lehman freefall, so late 2008. Um, and they had to assume, they decided to assume literally hundreds of billions of toxic assets from one of their largest banks, UBS. Um, and the first question in the press conference as they announced it, which is a very good question, the question was, well, how, can, how come you can take these when our largest 
private bank cannot? How can you withstand that uh, when our largest bank cannot? And, and his answer was, because we're here for an eternity. It's a good answer. It's the right answer. They believed him. So it was true. He's still there. Um, they're still there, and the assets are fine. Um, the third uh, thing is that if you're taking those decisions, you have that perspective. Try to take those decisions in the context of what we would call principle-based framework. So one of the great advantages we have in Canada, we have this inflation targeting agreement, which uh, was brokered over 20 years ago. That guides how we manage monetary policy. We can take we could take radical aggressive action when the economy was slowing um, rapidly because we had a very clear mandate and we could assure Canadians um, that we were not going to overshoot either on the downside or, or do too little. Um, when we provided liquidity to, uh, to the banks to keep the system functioning um, and make sure that Canadian business could borrow during the crisis, um, it was within a framework that ensured that we were not bailing out the institutions, but we were using the institutions in order to provide liquidity and credit ultimately to the real economy during a different time, uh, difficult time. Okay, so that was my first issue. How do you try to act rapidly? When you're ra acting ra uh, rapidly, how do you uh, act effectively? The second is how to act. Um, how do we act when the world is being transformed? And you know, it it, it bears remembering that. Um, this crisis has really accelerated uh, some trends that have been there uh, for a couple of uh, decades. Um, because of, you know, and this is a familiar tale, because of steady advances in transportation and information technology, uh, the widespread adoption, basically the global adoption of, of uh, market-based economic policies, uh, the global economy has globalized and economies everywhere have expanded. And never in history have we had economic integration of so many people, so many goods, so much capital. A fundamentally positive uh, development. It's lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. It's created the potential for hundreds of millions more, ultimately billion, to follow in their path. Soon the global middle class will outnumber the global poor. Um, at the same time, the gap between rich and poor countries has dramatically narrowed. The ratio of American GDP to Chinese GDP about two decades ago was 30 to 1. It's now 6 to 1. That's GDP per capita. Um, the crisis has accelerated this transformation. We, we uh, Unfortunately, one of the challenges with the United States is that it takes a while to get out from the, uh, the overhang from a financial crisis. Um, and our view is that the U.S. economy, by the end of 2015, will be about a trillion dollars smaller than it would have been if it had stayed on the path before the crisis. Now, obviously, it was an unsustainable path, but that trillion dollars makes a real difference uh, for Canadians. We're at a position now where emerging economies, uh, the emerging world accounts for three quarters of global growth. It accounts for more than a half of all import growth um, and is the new demand for virtually every commodity. So this multipolar world uh, requires a fundamental change in the structure of global governance. The days of the G7 steering uh, the global supertanker are over. Um, you know, when you hit an iceberg, uh, when you're on, on your watch, uh, you tend to be relieved of command. Uh, the G20 is now the preeminent forum for global economic cooperation. Uh, the Financial Stability Board uh, provides the framework for global financial regulation. Uh, and the IMF is reemerging uh, with, uh, with greater strength. Um, in this world of more diverse power centers, in order to be influential, countries need to be able to have variable coalitions. You don't always show up with the same dance partner. 
Um, we, you need to be able to forge a consensus and then adopt the global consensus uh, when one is formed in order to, be, to stay in the game. Um, and in this world, uh, a country like Canada that's emerged with credit from the crisis has tremendous advantages, a tremendous opportunity for Canada. Uh, we can be objective. Uh, we don't have the, for example, in, in the bit I work in on the financial reform side, we don't have the emotions that the major crisis economies have. I mean, there, it's, it's still an incredibly raw experience uh, for both the policymakers and for uh, the institutions. We're, I, I think this is, is right, we're, we're more objective about what the right answer is. Um, we're non-threatening, we're neither a rising, um, uh, you know, a sort of adolescent power or a fading reactionary power, we're a middle power if we play our cards right. Um, and we're, we have a skill that we've built over the years, uh, almost bred in the bone here in Canada, which is, which is one of, uh, you know, this is a country forged by a principled accommodation. That ability uh, to forge a consensus uh, is, is a Canadian trait that, that uh, we can use internationally. Um, now, we have global reputational capital. Um, it won't stay forever if it's not invested wisely. Um, progress in one area can reinforce our standing, but um, uh, mistrust in another can diminish our influence. And global cooperation is not a smorgasbord from which we can pick and choose. So our first best role, at least in my experience, is to define and do the right thing, irrespective of whether our actions are material to solving the underlying problem. So when you think about the specifics on the financial reform side, uh, there are things we did in order to help others do them. Uh, so uh, after uh, Lehman fell, uh, the Government of Canada agreed to uh, provide a, a guarantee option for Canadian banks, even though Canadian banks didn't need it, because we knew, they, the government knew, uh, and we absolutely agreed, that all the other G7 countries needed to do that. Uh, we also uh, agreed to provide a lot more liquidity options for our banks, again, in concert with global central banks, because that was the right thing to do, and there was strength in numbers. Um, it also means that uh, when there are agreements that uh, uh, we have to implement them as well, even in the absence of a binding protocol, uh, because it is, it is very much in our interest. And it's in our interest because as a trading nation, as an open nation, as a country that's been built by foreign investment and can grow by foreign trade and outward, outbound foreign investment, it's in our fundamental interests that the trade and the financial systems remain open. Uh, and, you know, sad to say, there is some risk uh, around that, and we need to work actively for our own interests as well as the globe's. Um, and it's also true, it's in our interest, because we are powerless in a system without rules and norms. We cannot enforce it ourselves, uh, and we're heavily exposed to the weakest link in the system. If there's a lesson from the crisis, is that the weakest link, um, those problems often flow back into Canada. Um, I would say as well that most fundamentally, looking back on the crisis, uh, it drives home the need for a global system. It's not enough just to have our own house in order, which is why we need to invest abroad. We, the only way it makes sense to only have our global house in order is if we seal ourselves off from the world. And if we did that, we'd end up obviously much poorer. Um, and the crisis itself, in our view, it, it stemmed in part uh, from the inconsistent between, inconsistency between an increasingly global span of markets and the national span of government. Because with the notable exception of trade, 
over the course of the last 30 years of globalization, actually international cooperation in the run-up to the crisis declined. Um, there was a movement away from sort of more treaty-based binding agreements to management by self-appointed groups, uh, management by the G7. I mean, I participated in a number of these meetings, and we'd, we'd, we'd write these uh, uh, call-to-arm type uh, communiques saying that the situation is unsustainable, and whether it was in imbalances or exchange rates or some other aspect, we wouldn't, we'd just, and then we'd be satisfied and we'd all go home. We wouldn't actually say we'd do anything about it. The situation's uns unsustainable. There you go. Make it sustainable. Um, and uh, we did get uh, a reaction eventually, uh, but uh, it wasn't, wasn't what we needed. So that brings me to my, uh, uh, my, my third point, um, which is how, how do you act, um, how do we act going forward when people are losing or have lost confidence in the system? Now, it's a bit odd talking about this here in Canada because I don't think that is the case in Canada, but internationally it, is, it, it, it certainly is a risk and there's elements of that. Um, in, in, when the G7 uh, met in October 2008, uh, so just after the fall of Lehman, uh, it was a Friday evening, uh, the government here was, uh, I think there was an election campaign, Minister of Finance came down especially for that, um, and there was a view entirely legitimate that uh, there was a real risk that markets would not open uh, the following Monday. Uh, fortunately, in Canada, it would have been the following Tuesday because Monday was uh, Thanksgiving, but uh, <laughs> not sure 24 hours would have given us much. Um, and I remember at the, uh, at the start of that, the German finance minister, Per Steinbrück, who's a very forceful individual um, and key to the overall decision in the end, uh, he started off by telling a story. He'd been in East Germany, some, uh, Essen or some, somewhere in East Germany earlier. Essen isn't in East Germany, Dresden, I think. Um, and he'd, he'd met an older woman who told him, you know, kind of shook her finger at him and said, I saw the fall of communism and I'm seeing the fall of capitalism. Steinberg says this and then launches into a discussion of the breakdown of social order that could happen if we don't get a decision. So that got our attention. So we ripped up. <laughs> You know, the this is unsustainable communique, and we had to actually do something. Um, but it's important to remember what had to be done were those things I listed earlier about and us coming along with other countries to, to support a system in Canada that didn't need those elements of support, whereas the rest did. Um, because at that time, within financial markets themselves, let alone in the broader populace, there was a complete loss of confidence in private finance. And it, it could only be arrested by a comprehensive backstop by the richest nations in the world. Um, but even with those efforts, we had a, uh, the, the aftermath of the crisis was the loss of about $4 trillion in output globally and about $28 million in jobs. Um, and the aftermath lives on, obviously, uh, not least in the fiscal positions of a number of uh, advanced economies. Uh, and as typically the case, a lot of these costs were borne by those who had least uh, responsibility for the fiasco, um, and I could quote you lots of figures. We were talking at the table about uh, unemployment in Spain. One in four workers now in Spain are unemployed. Uh, one in two uh, young Spaniards. 40% uh, plus of the U.S. Uh, US unemployed are long-term unemployed. That's never happened before. The U.K. is nowhere near uh, regaining its pre-crisis level of output even five years later. Um, and I think it does bear remembering, particularly outside our shores, that uh, this crisis took place against the, a trend of rising inequality, and it's actually reinforced it. Uh, well, market forces have been a powerful force, and the best force, 
uh, for creating wealth and narrowing income gaps between countries. Um, uh, globalization, the combination of globalization and technological chain, change has increased inequality. Uh, in Canada, uh, incomes for the top 10 percent have increased about twice the rate as incomes for the lowest 10. Uh, the last time inequality in the U.S. was this large was in the 1920s, and Chinese inequality is actually uh, larger than that of the U.S. Um, and so we have a situation where, in the run-up to the crisis, uh, those who reaped less of the gains of the great moderation, um, they fall into a crisis and then they bear a disproportionate uh, uh, share of the costs. Um, and you throw into that mix internationally um, an industry or some in an, an industry, financial services industry, that are curiously blind to these dynamics and, uh, and in fact in some cases see them as uh, part of the cost of the system. And I am, you know, uh, this, this, is, this is literally testimony to uh, the U.S. House uh, when a uh, major U.S. CEO said Reminded when I came to work today, my daughter asked, uh, you know, Daddy, what's the financial crisis? And my answer was, well, it's something that happens every five or seven years. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the type of fatalism that has to be rejected. Um, in every other aspect of human endeavor, men and women strive to learn and improve. Financial services should be no different. Um, and that's why the G20 through the FSB is undertaking a radical and comprehensive reform program to do that. And first and foremost in those reforms, uh, we need to deal with once and for all uh, the unfairness of a system that uh, privatizes gains and socializes losses. Uh, and that's why it's a top priority for policymakers, and I'm pleased to say, uh, for the industry. Uh, and this is something where there really has been a, a consensus of coming together uh, on the reform program. It's a top priority for both the industry and policymakers to end too big to fail. Um, more broadly, though, um, there is a need, uh, and this, is, this reform program is part of the process, to rebalance uh, between uh, the relationship between governments and markets. Now, we all know that stagnation uh, occurs when uh, governments dominate markets. Uh, and it's not just the extreme of communism, uh, but uh, I think corporatist Europe in the 70s and 80s. Um, but it's also true, as we've just learned, that sooner or later disasters come uh, if markets dominate, absolutely dominate governments. And uh, we did see in the run-up to this crisis too many governments captured by the myth that finance is self-regulating and can correct itself spontaneously. Uh, and secondly, policy-making, as I said earlier, almost remained almost exclusively at the level of the nation-state, uh, leaving what, in effect, leaving unmanaged uh, rapidly emerging global finance. Um, so since uh, the crisis is global in its origin, uh, it's, also, it's not just global in its consequences, it's, it was global in its origin. Uh, and coherent prevention is going to require a, a set of truly global processes or policies. And the bank, the, uh, the Minister of Finance, uh, and our regulator, OSFI, all of us uh, are playing a role, can continue to play a role, should continue to play a role in forging those, in forging those policies. Uh, and I think we're making, we're making progress, and it's something that rebounds overall to the benefit of this country. Um, so let me conclude. Uh, it, it, uh, thank you very much, uh, I guess, uh, once again. Uh, it's a great honor. Um, I've had a privilege um, uh, of guiding an exceptional organization through a very difficult time. Um, I've had the opportunity, while I've done, it, done this, to meet 
in all the provinces and territories, business leaders, uh, labor leaders, uh, Canadians. Um, and I would say that those were some of the meetings, I guess I forgot to mention, Diana, to you as well. Um, but um, in these meetings, uh, despite uh, the troubles abroad, uh, there has been uh, a quiet pride in how Canada has fared, um, mixed with an anxiety about the global development of the day and what that could mean, um, and a very strong de desire to move forward. Um, and so my final message is that, uh, and I think, I mean, this is a, especially this room, and I'm looking out at Peter Monk, who's done so much, to, uh, not just to uh, build business in this country, but to internationalize our thinking. Uh, through the Monk debates and countless other uh, other measures you've done, Peter. Uh, this is a room that I don't, I'm preaching the converted here uh, because you're here. Um, but um, we have to be outward looking. This is our future. Uh, it remains our future, our past and our future. Uh, but to be fully uh, engaged, um, we also need a strong public service. Um, and, uh, and so we need this. Our public service is a comparative advantage. Uh, that uh, needs to continue to be nurtured. It has been nurtured. It, it will emerge stronger uh, from the current experiences. Um, we need to continue to attract and retain uh, top talent into the public service. Uh, and there's a number of my colleagues uh, from the bank uh, here. Um, and I'm very pleased uh, to really accept this honor and dedicate it uh, to countless colleagues at the bank, um, at OSFI, uh, the, the regulator, uh, and at the Department of Finance and across the broader public service who all, who, you know, aren't being recognized directly but should be recognized, and I think that's the spirit, that really is the spirit of this uh, uh, award. Um, they fought the crisis and they're working to build a system that's going to be open, that's going to be more resilient, um, and that is going to, is going to uh, redound to the benefit of, of Canada and through Canada uh, to the world. So thank you very much, Jamie, and uh, all of you for your attention. Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, the governor has been good enough to take a few questions. Uh, who would like to go first? Don't be shy. Sorry. So, yes, sure. The microphone's coming over to you. Right? Okay, there we go. Uh, thank you for your, your time and, and your comments today. Um, you've referred to the, the strength of sort of the Canadian financial system overall and, and the strength of the Canadian financial companies. And as they step out more on the global stage in this is window, as you said, um, what do you see as perhaps the biggest threats or risks to their future success, and I guess Canada's reputation, globally, uh, politically, economically? Um, just some of your thoughts on what you see as some of those risk factors that we should all keep in mind as strategies go forward. Okay. Um, well, thank you, Janet. Um, Janet Ecker, as I think you all know, who's done doing so much to keep the strength of our uh, and, and build the strength of our financial services industry. Look, I, I think there's a couple of risks, and uh, I don't want to be prescriptive. I've had trouble for being prescriptive here earlier today. Um, one of them is, is assessing where relative opportunity is and really laying those, those bets, those investments accordingly. Um, if, if we're right about where relative economic power is going to be, 
uh, for many of our businesses, including our, our financial services industry, but beyond. Uh, they're underexposed to the major fast-growing markets. Um, and so to some extent, it's easy to point to that. It's, it's, it's much easier you know, to, to talk about it at a high level, but uh, there's that opportunity. The risk would be to ignore that opportunity. I think that's the first point. Um, but associated with that is, you know, no country smoothly emerges um, uh, and, and as spectacular as the rise of China, India, Brazil uh, are, and, and it is an absolute transformation, there is going to be significant volatility along the way. So um, from an from a investment perspective, from a capital perspective, keeping a medium-term perspective, um, relying um, on a system that can be there through the cycle. Uh, the Canadian financial system that can be there through the cycle is incredibly important uh, as well. So it, I, I think, I think the, 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 the simple risks I would put are threefold. One is not seeing the relative opportunity. Secondly, not planning uh, appropriately, and there's lots of top bankers here who can help you plan appropriately in terms of your financing. Um, and the third uh, would be to think that and this is a judgment different people would make, but to think that current elevated levels of commodity prices are a temporary phenomenon. I mean, eventually all commodity booms end, but this one, in our view, will go on for some time, and that has a consequence for how efficient you are in using commodities, but also the scale of ambition in terms of developing the commodity opportunities in this country. Thank you. Question over here. Hi, uh, Rajat Kanad, Laurentian Bank. Um, thank you for your time. My question was, it increasingly looks like um, the central bank's taking an isolated um, view on interest rate hikes. The swap market now is pricing in about a hike into the, uh, into the year end. And I just wanted to have an understanding of, is it inflation targeting more in your mind? Is it because the housing reforms could be a lot more structural in nature than being a monetary hike in policy? So I was just wondering, what's the motivation there uh, to be so isolated? Um, rather than wait for the euro crisis to go, is it something that well, uh, we look, know better? Or yeah, I'm I'm not quite sure where you get the word isolated from. Uh, we our job is to manage monetary policy for Canada, so in that regard, we're always isolated. We're, we're we we have, uh, you know, that's one of the benefits of having uh, flexible currency is uh, that we have our own dynamics here in Canada, and so we will set monetary policy consistent with the achievement of the two percent inflation target. Uh, and uh, we've observed that uh, with, an, with a, um, an economy that has been growing above potential, uh, with underlying inflation dynamics firming, that some modest withdrawal of, of some of the exceptional uh, considerable monetary stimulus that's currently in place may become appropriate, may become appropriate, but that's within the context of global and domestic risks, and so any decision would be weighed carefully. And, not going to take a decision, obviously, here today. You referenced housing, though, uh, rightly. So it, this is this is monetary policy. We're focused first and foremost on inflation. There are other tools to address vulnerabilities uh, in household debt. Uh, the government of Canada has, on three occasions, uh, tightened mortgage insurance rolls appropriately and in a timely fashion. Uh, banks are being asked to hold more capital sooner than other banks internationally. That helps to lean against. Uh, OSFI, the bank regulators, working with institutions to ensure that mortgage underwriting standards, or sorry, home equity loan underwriting standard, standards are tight. All these things together help to address those potential vulnerabilities. Uh, so uh, the combination of the two, uh, we, we can hit those, uh, those, the collective we can hit those two objectives. Uh, and, uh, and that is the intent. 
One last question. Susan? Yeah. I can repeat it if you, I, I can, yeah. Um, maybe I won't repeat the question. <laughs> Could you make some evasive anodyne comments about Europe was the question, I think, uh, that you asked. Um, so it's very, very appropriate. Um, yeah, I, in fact, I can. I have some right here. Um, uh, here's some I prepared earlier. Uh, no, look, the, the question is, is Europe going to be able to solve its problems? And, and, and that's the right question. Uh, and it's, it's a couple of comments. One is the time over which they solve their problems uh, is not measured in weeks, months, it's measured in years. Uh, so we have to have that perspective. And Europe needs to, and it's done a lot to get into this position, Europe needs to uh, create um, the buffers so that if governments follow the right policies, they have enough time for them to work and them to resolve their problems. So that's the first two points. Um, but what is the problem? And, this, and part of the problem is identifying what the underlying problem is. And in our view, uh, the problem is, this is a balance of payments crisis. It's, it manifests itself in problems in the banking sector and some fiscal problems. But even if you fix the banks, which you need to do, and even if you get your budgets under control, which they need to do, you won't have solved an underlying problem, which is relative competitiveness, for example, of Spain. You use Spain versus Germany. And the only way to make those adjustments is through, um, you can make those adjustments three ways, moving productivity up in Spain relative to Germany, moving wages down in Spain relative to, uh, to Germany, and moving uh, German wages up, if you will, and German, uh, you know, the adjustment that could come on the German side. And in our view, all of that has to happen. And um, so one of the things that we urge, and the Minister of Finance urges uh, when we meet our European co colleagues is to is to focus in on this underlying dynamic uh, because that has a different set of policy prescriptions than just saying, oh, if only I could balance my budget in two years, everything will be okay. Well, well that is important uh, to move towards fiscal sustainability. Just having fiscal sustainability will not solve this. Uh, and, uh, and so Europe is going to be with us for some time as an issue, uh, and our job um, through the various G's and through the Financial Stability Board, and the government's job is to, is to isolate, is to help Europe as much as we can, but also help isolate, insulate, if you will, insulate is a better word, to the extent possible Canada. We can't totally insulate Canada, obviously, from European issues, but we can mitigate it somehow. Great. Ladies and gentlemen, the Canadian Club 2012 Canadian of the Year, Mark Curran. I would now ask Susan MacArthur, the chair of the uh, Canadian of the Year Committee, to say a few words, and Don Newman also to join us on stage, please. So quickly, I just want to, Governor Carney and uh, guests, I want you to know that we take this award very seriously at the Canadian Club. 
Uh, we solicit nominations from all the board members, and then we, the committee of the Canadian Club of the Year, uh, go through a very difficult process, and uh, we're very pleased to come up with our economic rock star, Governor Mark Carney, as, as this year's recipient. Um, as I think in particular this year, um, as Jamie said earlier, Canadians, we pick someone who has touched the lives of Canadians, and I think arguably this year you could say that Governor Carney has touched the lives of not only Canadians, but those around the world. So with no further ado, I would like to present you with the award. And let me, on behalf of the club, uh, add our words of thanks, uh, Governor, for you uh, coming to speak to us today. Um, I read in the Financial Times, I can't remember if it was today or yesterday, <laughs> But uh, it said that uh, central bank governors during the crisis and beyond into this period were now seen as firefighting saviors. And I don't think because knowing you and when we see you uh, around, how modest you are and how dedicated you are and how you're concentrating on what you're doing, I don't think you realize how proud Canadians are, not just people in this room, not people in the industry or in the political world, but Canadians in general are, that our firefighting savior is actually the fire chief, and that the world has seen him that way. As McLean said, you were hired to save the world, and um, it looks as though the job is going not too badly right now, and uh, we don't want you to take it easy and let up in any way. Come to too many of these lunches, but uh, you were talking for a moment about the opportunities that Canada has, and talking about the Canadian character, one of uh, modesty, one of finding a consensus, fine of uh, not having an ax to grind, not having a dog in the fight. And I think, uh, Governor, you are the personal embodiment of all of those things. And I think that's why you've had the success you have. And I think that's the way you've reached out and touched Canadians without even trying to do it. And I hope, and I think everybody here would agree with this, that you are in fact are the prototype of the kind of Canadian public servant, but also the Canadian international public servant, who will play a role in a changing world that has already understood how the world is changing and have an influence for our country in a world of emerging economic superpowers of which we will not truly be one, although we'll be prosperous, and that our country will have an influence in the world and an influence for good uh, because of Canadians like you playing the kind of role that you sir are playing. So I hope you are uh, both the prototype and a role model for others in our country. And again today, I know how busy you are. I told you not to let up and come to too many lunches, but thank you very much for coming to ours. Thank you for accepting our award. Don, thank you very much. Susan, thank you and your committee for your hard work. And of course, Governor, for accepting our award. Thanks also to our sponsors. First, uh, Capital Realty Corp, uh, TD Bank, and uh, Tories, and also to Barrick. And Barrick reminds me that I was remiss earlier in not acknowledging the presence of a previous Canadian of the Year award winner, uh, Peter Monk from Barrick. So, Peter, welcome and thank you for being here today.
This concludes the television broadcast of today's lunch. We continue to be thankful to Rogers Television and 680 News for their support of our club activities. Uh, lunch is now adjourned. Thanks for being with us.